Welcome back to Context Clues. You're here for the Indecent Directing production role engagement. As a reminder, for each show you will be choosing one production role, viewing the show through the lens of that particular role as a way of learning about different moving parts required to get a piece of theater up on its feet. That means that if you did the directing production role engagement last time, you can't do it this time. Conversely, if you didn't do the directing production role engagement, this time you must since it's your last chance to do so. So, let's dive into directing. When people speak about the role of a stage director, they tend to do so in metaphor. The captain of the ship, the head of the table, the king of the jungle. Okay, I've never actually heard someone use that last one, but you get the idea. The director is the person whose vision guides the production. How this operates varies. On the one end of the spectrum is the model of a director as an auteur who dictates everything from actors' vocal patterns to minute design decisions. On the other end, especially in devised theater, theater where a company makes up a piece together without a script, is the director as a sort of outside eye, just someone to reflect to the company what they're seeing to help shape the final product. The most common model in contemporary educational, community, and commercial theater, at least in the U.S., is that of the director as lead collaborator, the person who enters into a production process with a particular concept for their production of the play and then works with all the other collaborators, actors, designers, and so on, to bring that concept to fruition. To understand how a contemporary director functions, it's helpful to know a little bit about the history of directing. This is about to be a lot of information pretty quickly, so make sure you're listening as you're filling out your engagement tracker and not trying to fill it out after the fact. Full disclosure, this is the very quick and dirty version of directing history. If you're listening and thinking, hmm, that seems like a simplified narrative. That's true. Check out one of our theater history courses for a more detailed scoop. It is probably not news to you that plays have directors, even if you're someone with absolutely no experience with theater whatsoever. There are a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of moving parts putting a play together. Of course someone is in charge. That hasn't always been a given, however, and especially not the way it operates today. We think that Greek plays probably had some shaping and performance from a variety of directions, with the playwright doing some shaping of the delivery of the main part of the play, and the head of the chorus shaping how the chorus operated. If this is all Greek to you, don't worry. We'll dig more into Greek theater in the next unit, including why I'm saying we think that's how it worked versus just telling you definitively how things played out. Theater worked like that for a long time, with people who were part of creating the play working together to figure out what it looked like. Some forms of theater, no, Sanskrit drama and Commedia dell'arte, for example, were codified in a way that meant performers were passing down performance traditions that maintained the aesthetic and spirit of the art. Some European theater mostly, we think, consisted of actors getting their lines shortly in advance, throwing together whatever costume pieces they could and figuring it out in the moment, often with a declamatory acting style, that is, mostly standing on stage and saying the words, rather than the acting style we think of today where we try to make it seem like characters are real people. It's in the era of Shakespeare where professional acting companies started to emerge that we saw the emergence of an actor-manager, who acted but also handled some of the business interests of the theater. We also think the lead player of some of these companies probably gave other actors some guidance about how he, and it would have been he in that era, wanted them to live on stage around him. 
There were some moves over time toward a contemporary acting style, and our contemporary understanding that the script, acting, costume, scenery, etc. should all work together and be chosen on purpose to tell the same story. But most theater historians position the emergence of the director at a particular moment in the late 18 and early 1900s, when two important figures emerged on the scene. The first is Richard Wagner, a German opera composer best known for Das Rheingold, The Ring Cycle. You probably know some of his work, even if you don't think you do. The Here Comes the Bride song is from one of his operas. Wagner created his own opera house, the Bayreuth Festival House, to be able to produce his work the way he wanted. He was an advocate of the idea of Gestankenswerk, a total work of art, meaning that he felt that every part of the operatic experience, the music, the staging, even the way the audience was seated, should be shaped in service to the production as a whole. The idea that an audience should be seated in the dark, facing a lit stage, and should watch quietly comes from him, for better or for worse. At roughly the same time, George II, the Duke of Saxe-Meiningen, was touring Europe with his company of players. The Duke of Saxe-Meiningen is often thought of as the first modern director, seeking historical realism in set and costume pieces and focusing on the composition of stage pictures. This move towards cohesive productions dovetailed with a move towards realism and acting in a way you'll appreciate once you've completed the acting production role engagement for another play, but for now it's enough to know that it happened. There was a rise of the director as a production role, with famous directors and their philosophies of theater shaping areas of the field. Edward Gordon Craig shared Wagner's passion for productions to be the living embodiment of the director's vision, viewing actors as uber-marionettes, living puppets to shape as he liked. Bertolt Brecht created Epic Theater, a theater for social change that relied on creating discomfort in the audience to motivate them to take action outside the theater. Antonin Artaud created the Theater of Cruelty, a theatrical style that decentralized language and the intellect in favor of creating visceral audience experiences. His style influenced theater artists in the 60s and 70s who tried to break down barriers between actors and audience members. Anne Bogart and Tadashi Suzuki joined together with different philosophies of physical theater to form the City Company. And so on and so forth. For the moment, directors are here to stay. But what does a director actually do? Let's follow a director through a typical production process. A director finds out that they are directing a show. Maybe they've hand-selected this show because they really want to direct it, or maybe they've been hired to direct it, but either way, they now have a script. This script provides some parameters, unless it is in the public domain, like Shakespeare, or they make specific negotiations with the company that holds the rights to the script, the director knows that whatever they put on stage must include those characters speaking those words in that order, and nothing else. So it's the director's job to decide why those words need to be said. This is often framed as posing the question, why this play now? What about this play makes it suited to be produced for this audience in this moment? As they answer this question, a director forms their concept for the production, their overall artistic vision, and distills this into a concept statement. A concept statement is usually a short statement that offers a glimpse of what the director thinks the play is about, the basic plot and theme, as well as guidance around the overall tone of the piece and any important information about setting, style, etc. This concept statement becomes the goal towards which the entire production works, 
and the director will share it with everyone working on the show to guide their collaboration. This concept statement is always important, but it's particularly important in productions that play with any of the given circumstances of the script. For example, a director might change the time period or setting of a play in order to make a production more visually exciting, make a production more affordable, or help the audience relate to the characters and situation better. But the rest of the production team needs to know what changes are happening and why. Last week, we used the fairy tale of Goldilocks and the Three Bears as an example for dramatic story structure. A concept statement for a production of Goldilocks and the Three Bears aimed at small children might sound like, Some days, it's hard to be a kid. Sharing is no fun, there's nothing good at snack time, and the whole world is made for people bigger than you. Goldilocks and the Three Bears is a whimsical fairy tale romp showing young audiences that it's okay to try new things, even if it sometimes takes a while to find something new that's just right. But you should probably knock on someone's door before entering, just to be polite. This production puts Goldilocks in a world like the one young audience members face every day, where everything is scaled for creatures very different than her. Alternatively, an ironic production of the same script intended for adult audiences as part of an evening of theater might have a production concept that sounds like this. Colonization is so deeply entrenched in the mindset of U.S. and Western European communities that it's even baked into the bread of the stories we use to raise our children. In this gritty production of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, the colonizing force of Goldilocks rampages through the wares of diverse cultures and the personages of Three Bears, ultimately destroying what she doesn't understand and consuming as her own that which seems to be just right. Echoing the artificial cheer present in Cold War-era propaganda, this play calls attention to the unsustainability of violent and invasive practices of cultural borrowing, warning that the bears always come home in the end. And when we've removed all the forests, there won't be anywhere to run to. These are two radically different interpretations of the same script, but both provide some clear ideas about the world the director wants to create. Indecent is something of a special case, because press around the show often features the playwright and director both discussing the ways the play operates, in a way you might see only a director doing for a play that's had a bunch of different productions. Watch the video in your engagement tracker of Paula Vogel and Rebecca Teichman at the opening press event for the Broadway production of Indecent, and then, informed by what they share they find important about the play, try to write out what a concept statement for the production might have looked like. Try this formula. 1. An opening sentence that describes something in the world the play is responding to. If the central question of directing is, why this play now, this sentence clarifies what and where the now is. 2. A sentence explaining the parts of the play that are important to the core concept. What is it about the play that the director is bringing out? 3. Another sentence or two explaining how the play addresses the current moment, along with any specifics that are important to know about when or where the play will be set. Type this somewhere you can access it later. It's going to become a part of your Flipgrid post. If this isn't enough information to feel confident in writing a directing statement like the Goldilocks samples above, there is an extra worksheet in the weekly content section of the forum that spells out more clearly how this formula was applied to create those concept statements. So, as a reminder, you're going to watch the video, 
answer the engagement tracker questions, and then reverse engineer a director's concept statement of Teichman and Vogel's production using the formula above based on what they shared in the video. Go! Do it! Just do it! Don't let your dreams be dreams. Now you, like the hypothetical director in our example, have a clear concept statement. That's important, because the next step of the process is to start meeting with lighting, costume, sound, and set designers about how the show will look and sound. Those designers will use the concept statement as inspiration for their own design ideas. They will bring the director suggestions, and through a series of conversations, the director and designers will come to agreements about how all the design elements of the show will work together. It's important to know that this relationship is a collaboration. It's the director's job to make sure that the design of the whole production helps support the story and that the design elements work well together, but it isn't their job to just tell designers what to do. Instead, they create parameters. Here's the concept statement. Also, I really want set elements that can be climbed on, for example. And then trust their collaborators to create designs that do everything the director needs them to do in ways that are more elegant or cool or streamlined than the director might have been able to think of on their own. At some point in this process, it will be time for casting. Before casting, the director has some decisions to make. Who do they see playing these parts? What kind of actors do they want to hire? Is there anything special they need to advertise for? A play that features deaf characters in the U.S., for example, needs actors who know ASL, so a director may ask to advertise for that specifically. Indecent, for example, required actors who could do a certain amount of singing and dancing, but it was particularly important to find actors who had strong language, accent, and dialect skills to handle the many ways of speaking the characters do throughout the play. Once the director and theater have worked to develop a casting pool, it's time for auditions. Often, there is a first round where everyone who wants to audition comes and either reads from the play or performs a monologue. Then the director holds callbacks to see actors in specific roles and consider their chemistry with each other. Casting decisions are made, in conversations with the dramaturg if there is one, a role you'll learn more about soon, and actors are notified. Once everyone's on board, it's time for rehearsal. Directors often spend time early in the process doing table work, time when the company, all the performers in a show, sit around a table and talk through the script, but some jump directly into blocking. Blocking is the process of deciding where actors move on stage and when, and this is most often a collaborative process between the actors and director. As the process continues, directors work with actors to shape their characters, asking guiding questions and giving notes to help all the actors work towards the common goal of a cohesive production. Near the end of the process, rehearsals probably look like the actors arriving, doing a full run of the show, and then getting notes from the director after the run is finished about what to tweak. Not every rehearsal process looks the same. Different shows have different needs, different directors have different skill sets, and different production companies have different budgets to bring in expert personnel as needed. For example, a show with stage violence might have a fight choreographer, depending on how extensive the fighting is and how comfortable a director is staging moments of violence safely. A production like Indecent might have a vocal coach to help with the singing or accent, dialect, and language work if a director isn't able to or isn't interested in doing so. The production team might also include an intimacy choreographer if a director isn't trained to stage scenes of intimacy themselves. 
Intimacy choreography is a fairly young field, and many theaters were employing intimacy professionals for the very first time right around the time many regional and educational theater companies were performing indecent. I did the intimacy choreography for a production in Kansas last semester. Keep an eye out for a bonus production role engagement opportunity later in the semester to dive a little deeper into the role of an intimacy choreographer. Whether a director is doing their own intimacy work or they're bringing in an expert, though, there are lots of different thoughts on how staging theatrical intimacy should operate. Theatrical Intimacy Education, TIE or TIE, is an organization developing fluency in best practices and theatrical intimacy in educational environments. One of the co-founders, Chelsea Pace, recently released Staging Sex, a book sharing their technique. For a quick overview of how intimacy has been staged in the past and current best practices, we're going to take a look at the introduction. Read it, answer the appropriate questions in your engagement tracker, and come back. This is how we do If that introduction was interesting to you, I strongly encourage you to both take advantage of the extra credit production role engagement when it comes up, and to check out Chelsea Pace's book for yourself. This isn't the only way intimacy gets staged, but it's interesting and useful to know that it's out there. Whether a director or other specialist handles the parts of the rehearsal process that benefit from specific technique, by the time tech rolls around, the director's work is almost done. During tech, the week or so before performances where all the technical elements get integrated, the director will offer feedback early on about the placement of lighting and sound cues, but once those are set, the director's job is nearly done. They will likely continue to give actors and designers notes to tighten the play until the final run-through, but once the show opens, the director is hands-off. No further notes to actors or designers are allowed. In fact, in professional theater settings, directors are often out of town by the second night of performances and won't see the show again for the duration of its run. Now you know more about how the directing process works and what falls under a director's jurisdiction. Let's finish that discussion post and dig a little deeper into the specifics of Vogel and Teichmann's creative partnership. Before we do that, though, it's time for... The bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. Welcome to the bare necessities, the part of the podcast where I teach you terminology you really need to know. Today's edition, Types of Stages. There are many different stage designs describing both types of theaters and how audiences and performers are oriented in a theatrical space. Sometimes a play is performed in a specific kind of space, because that is the kind of space the production company has access to. Sometimes directors and designers work together to decide on a seating and performance arrangement to help serve a specific vision for the production. Regardless, the words we use to describe these kinds of stages are must-know content from a theater appreciation course. You are probably most familiar with the proscenium stage. This is a stage design where the performance happens at one end of the space, often on a raised stage, and the audience all sits facing that space in a big block, perhaps with some aisles in between rows. Movie theaters, for example, have the architecture of a proscenium stage, with an audience on one side of the performance. But that isn't the only option. If an audience is on two sides of the performance space, and those sides are facing each other with the performance space in the middle, that's called alley staging. An arrangement with audience members on three sides of a performance space is called a thrust. 
If an audience is on four sides surrounding the performance space, that performance style is referred to as arena staging, or sometimes performance in the round. Finally, black box theaters are small, flexible spaces where the seating can be moved to create lots of different seating arrangements. So each show in that space has to make a decision about where the audience should go and where the performers should go. Generally speaking, while proscenium houses can be really huge, if you know that a show is staged a different way, you can anticipate that the space is likely more intimate. Being able to put audience members on multiple sides means that you need fewer rows in each section to fit the same number of audience members, which means that the audience members in the back row of each section are closer to the stage than they would have been in a proscenium arrangement. Keep this information in mind. You'll need it soon. Necessities are Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Teichmann and Vogel enjoyed an unusual collaborative process that operates outside of some of the norms of directing we've discussed. Watch the video, answer the questions, and then come back for your Flipgrid prompt. We go together like You've thought a lot about how Indecent operates and how directors do their work. Now it's your turn to try on your directing hat. In Flipgrid, I'm going to ask you to do a few things. First, share the concept statement you wrote for Teichmann and Vogel's production of Indecent. Next, imagine that you are directing Indecent. There are so many different themes and concepts in this play. In your production, what themes would you want to emphasize? Why? Because Broadway theaters definitionally hold at least 500 seats, there are only so many ways that seating tends to be arranged. In your production, however, you can choose whatever kind of staging you'd like. Revisit the kinds of stages. Which would you want for your production? Why? Finally, offer a discussion question for your peers. This time around, we're going to try something a little different with Flipgrid. Rather than being alone with your ensemble, I'm putting you in a Flipgrid topic with one additional ensemble in the hopes that everyone will have a video to respond to. It's really important that you get your Flipgrid posts done by Wednesday night, because not doing so makes it harder for your peers to offer their responses. I look forward to seeing what you come up with, and I look forward to sharing Antigone with you next week. Bye! Good